a voice. That was all, except the stars and the trees. Creation was your witness, but there were no books or rules or religion. Legends, yes, of a distant past in which God walked with men. Sacrifice, perhaps, made to powers unseen, but no examples, no teachers for the man you chose. It had to be that way in the beginning. A walk led purely by the Spirit, the beginning of salvation history as a foretaste of its end, when we will have no need of teachers, for we will all know you directly. I wonder what you saw in Abraham that moved you so, that you would speak to him in human words, entrusting him with a promise dear to your own heart, that you would seal him with your friendship. It was something similar, I imagine, to what you saw in Mary. Was it awe or humility? Longing? How do you choose those to whom you open your thoughts? I wonder what it was like for Abram when he heard you the first time, when he realized that the one who called the universe into being was calling him, when your voice cried out from eternity and landed in Haran upon him. It must have been electrifying, exhilarating, terrifying, and consoling all at once. Your voice is power and glory. It transcends human imagination. When we hear it, our souls are shaken, or rather, they are plowed, laid bare, and tested. Those who hear you must respond. The choice is simple. Though weighty, we will believe or we will doubt. Those who dare to believe receive an eternal seed which takes roots in their soul, a seed of the same stock you gave to Abram. You spoke to Abram many times before you released the seed, the great seed which you had promised Eve in the garden, the seed which would grow into your own family tree. But he could bear, he, before he could bear the weight of that promise, Abram had to trust your voice. You're kind to your prophets that way, introducing yourself slowly, mindful that we are humans and are dust. You spoke to Moses in a burning bush before coming in a pillar of fire. You fed Elijah with ravens before lifting him to heaven in a whirlwind. You showed Jeremiah a simple tree before revealing the boiling pot of destruction. You sent an angel to prepare Mary before you overshadowed her yourself. With Abram, I suspect you began even more slowly, for you were doing an entirely new thing. You were choosing a people as your witness on earth Abram knew you as creator, as God and judge of all. But Isaac would know you as the God of his father. 
and Jacob would know you as the God of Abraham and Isaac. All men afterwards would know you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am astounded at such humility that you would choose to be known by the name of men. You love this name, I think, for you are a father yourself. Fatherhood is the joy from which your actions spring. It is the end for which the world was made. It is the mystery into which you called Abram and his descendants. Thanks. So that reading is from the book that I've written called My Father Abraham. For the past two years, I've just been kind of lost in wonder, contemplating Abraham, thinking, what does it mean for God to take a man as a friend? What does it mean for him to lay hold of a people as his possession and inheritance? Abraham is one of the few figures in scripture to be called a friend of God. And he is also the only Jewish man whom Gentiles can rightly call father because God changed his name to Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. And he is a spiritual father to all who believe in his seed, Jesus, the Messiah. With the exception of Moses, Jesus refers to Abraham more than any other figure in the Old Testament. 26 times in the gospel, Jesus mentions Abraham by name. I've come to believe that Jesus' emphasis on the person of Abraham is closely tied to his love for the Father. Because Jesus knew he was the seed. He was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He also understood his father as a person who has friends and keeps his friendship with an undying love. For God is the God of the living and not of the dead. There is so much I would love to say about Abraham today. It's one of the longer narratives of scripture, spanning 13 chapters. It's a very human, relatable story filled with faith and doubt, jealousy, hope, fear, pain, valor, love. It's a complex narrative involving Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Lot, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, the mysterious figure of Melchizedek comes to bless Abraham, and even Pharaoh makes an appearance. It's all a wonderful story, and I highly recommend you go home and read it all. But since our time is short, I want to focus today on two chapters. Genesis 15 and 22. These two chapters speak of two gifts entrusted to Abraham, which are essential to our salvation. And those gifts are covenant and fatherhood. Let's begin by considering Abraham's fatherhood. Now, as Matt has already pointed out, there are many men in scripture who in some way or another prefigure Christ. They serve as types of Christ. We've already learned that Adam and Noah are types of Christ. Melchizedek, Moses, David are also types of Christ. But Abraham is a type of the father. And in this respect, he is unique in scripture. Now, when God looked down from heaven and found a man that he wanted to bless among all. 
of all of the riches, all of the glory, all of the honor he could pour upon his friend, the greatest gift that he could possibly imagine was the gift of a son. And that's because that is what is closest to the father's own heart. The love between the father and the son burns at the core of the Godhead. It is his being, the love of the father and the son and the spirit. Now, if all of the material universe were to suddenly vanish, the father's relationship with his son would continue. The Trinity would consist, perfectly happy, complete in the love of its persons. But we know that the universe will not cease to exist. We will not be wiped away in a moment of anger because God has extended his love to us men. He intends to make us true brothers and sisters of his only begotten. And he has communicated his fatherly love by binding himself with promises. So God's fatherhood is expressed in his faithfulness, and his faithfulness is expressed most clearly and most explicitly in covenant. Now, Before we look at the covenant God established with Abraham, I want to do a quick review of the events that lead up to this covenant. You know, God called Abraham from Haran and said, come to a land that I will show you, which I will give you. So he did. He came with Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and shortly after they arrived in the promised land, there was a famine, probably rather confusing. <laughs> so they're there and they have to leave. They go to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, Abram says to Sarah, you are so beautiful that I'm afraid that the Egyptians are going to kill me to take you, so would you please lie and say that you're my sister? And sure enough, Pharaoh was captivated, captivated by Sarai, and he took her, but God intervened, Sarah was saved, and they sent this family out of Egypt, very rich. So many years had passed, Abraham still did not possess the land, and he had no offspring. And this was the situation when the Lord spoke to Abram again as he had done in Haran. This is what he said. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing as I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Now, I want us all to read this last verse together. It's up there. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This verse, I believe, is one of the most important of all in all of Scripture. And it is especially important to us Gentiles because it shows us how we enter into salvation. Now remember, Abraham lived in a time before the law, 
He could not fulfill the law as an act of faith or righteousness. Now understand, the law of the Lord is beautiful, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is right. All of the law is righteous and glorious. It was a sign given um, to Israel as a wonder for the nations. Fulfilling the law for Jews as an act of faith and worship. But Abraham himself could not participate in the feast or the sacrifices of the Mosaic law. He was saved in the same way we Gentiles are saved, by believing the promise of God. And Paul indicates in Galatians that this promise to Abraham was, in fact, the gospel in seminal form. I love this verse from Galatians. Therefore, recognize that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, I cannot tell you how happy it makes me to think of Abraham as my father. I cannot tell you how happy I will be the day I am received into Abraham's bosom. I think it must totally blow Abraham's mind to see me and you, and you and you and you, all the daughters and sons of the nations born to him thousands of years after he died, born because we believe in the Savior born of his line. It makes my heart beat hard to think of our father God sitting next to Abraham, laughing with joy, showing his friend how far beyond anything, anything he could have ever possibly asked or imagined, he has fulfilled the word that he spoke and is still fulfilling it. Because I can assure you that on the day that God called Abram, he had no idea that God Almighty was going to entrust to him the lineage of his only begotten. I mean, who, who would dare to fathom that? Who could imagine that? What audacity could ever ask for that? Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the crazy kind of love that God has for his friends. This is the crazy type of love he has for his friends. And guess what? That's the crazy kind of love and honor he is bestowing upon us. Behold what manner of crazy, insane love it is that we should be called the sons of God. And that is what we are. It is amazing. Now let's go back to Genesis and examine this covenant more closely. And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he, Abraham, said, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now we know already that Abram believed, and God was moved by his belief. God is moved by our belief. It touches him. It touches him when we believe things that we cannot see. He's moved by this. 
And God had already, already Abraham was righteous in his eyes, but he continues the conversation. He keeps speaking. And I believe that as he speaks, the Holy Spirit is burning in Abraham's heart, stirring up faith so that he asked for a sign. How shall I know that I possess it, Abram asked. I believe God wanted Abram to ask the question. He wanted to give a sign. He wanted to enter into covenant. God wanted to write his word in stone, as it were, for generation after generation to ponder. And furthermore, I think he was doing something else. He wanted to draw Abraham into the promise, further into the promise, into the mystery of the salvation he was going to work through Israel. He wanted to give him a foretaste of what was coming, a foretaste of a new covenant that was coming, not to replace this covenant, but a new covenant that would, that would bring it, push us further into his heart, into his plan. So God's answer to Abram seems very strange. He tells Abram to prepare animals for sacrifice. Now up to this point in scripture, there have no, been no prescribed sacrifices. Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, Noah offered a sacrifice, but it seems that whatever they offered was up to the giver. Now God is doing something different. He's telling Abram exactly how to prepare a sacrifice. This is something that he would do with great detail with Moses. And these animals, I think, do point toward the sacrifices which would be offered in the tabernacle. The two birds, I believe, speak of the redemption sacrifice that was offered for Jesus in the temple. But the way these animals are prepared is very unusual. They are split in two with a sort of aisle or passage between them. What I find even more fascinating than the sacrifice is the way God made Abram wait. Abram waited all day, driving birds away, not knowing what would become of the carcasses. Did he wonder if he had heard right? Because all this came to him in a vision, right? So did he wonder, maybe I imagined it? Maybe, my, maybe I got it wrong. God was not very quick to put him out of that kind of <laughs> tension. <laughs> Abram waited all day, driving birds away, not knowing what was going to happen with those carcasses. You know, waiting was the hallmark of Abraham's faith. He waited and waited and waited for a fulfillment of God's word, just as the Jewish people waited and waited and waited for the Messiah. Just as we wait and wait and wait for Jesus' return. One of the primary lessons we learn from Abraham is that faith is largely a matter of waiting. So let us not grow weary in waiting. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Now it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now when God finally did show up, he came in a way that was completely unfamiliar to Abram. Instead of speaking words of promise, God plunged Abram into a deep darkness 
a soul-shaking terror that he would never forget. This was a gift. It was an encounter with the fear of the Lord in which Abram was undone like Moses before the burning bush or like John who fell like a dead man before Jesus in Revelation. The fear of the Lord was a seal on Abram's heart, an assurance he was not hearing voices or having delusions. But this particular darkness, I believe, held another purpose. It was a share in a mystery of salvation yet to be revealed. I believe the darkness Abraham experienced when the Lord made covenant with him was a foreshadowing of the darkness which would cover Egypt on the night of the Passover. A terror covered the land as the angel of death passed over the houses of Abram's descendants. And terror gripped the Israelites again as they stood at night on the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army in pursuit. That night of darkness and fear was the beginning of Israel's identity as a nation. It was the night they saw the Lord's deliverance. It was their first step towards home. It was their first step towards fulfilling the promise given to Abram. Concerning the land, particularly. Now, why do I believe this covenant is a prophetic or a proleptic play of the Exodus? Well, there's the darkness. There's the separating of the animals, like the parting of the sea. And there's a smoking pot which passes through the carcasses, and that calls to mind the pillar of fire which led Israel through the sea. All of these are visual signs but the clearest indication of all is what God says himself. Then God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Here God himself is referencing the enslavement in Egypt and the Exodus. He's drawing Abraham into a mystical participation in this event. Abraham experienced this darkness, this passage, this mystery ahead of time in a veiled way. The early church fathers say that we Christians also share in this mystery of the Exodus backwards through our baptism. Or, to put it another way, the Exodus points forward to our baptism. Immersion of, in water is a sign of passage from spiritual death to life, from slavery to sin to freedom of children, like Israel's passage through the sea. So all of God's people, past, present, future, Jew and Gentile, are caught up into one glorious story of salvation, which is typified in the Exodus. Now, God himself orchestrated the exodus, full of drama and light and sound so that our flesh and blood could grasp the glory of salvation. God was there with his people in the fire, blowing back the waters, 
hundreds of thousands, perhaps well over a million sons and daughters of Abraham stood breathless on the shore, decked out in cold jewelry, watching in wonder as God claimed them as his own. It was the most awesome, dreadful, astounding spectacle human history has ever seen up to this point. It was designed so that our flesh could grasp the glory of our salvation. I want, you to, I want to emphasize a type is not a literary device. It's not a cool thing that authors use. A type is a physical flesh and blood participation in a spiritual reality. And every time we enact um, one of these types, communion, baptism, the feast of Israel, we are tying ourselves to those types, to the story, to the spiritual reality behind them. Does that make sense? Paul writes about this mystery in 1 Corinthians. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. What a mind-boggling statement. And I am not going to try to unpack that. I'm just going to leave it at that. Christ was the rock. This is very similar to what Paul says. He preached the gospel to Abraham. Christ is the center of all human history. All the covenants of God point toward him, not invalidating one another, but building upon one another, unfolding new dimensions of God's glory. The covenant with Noah revealed God's mercy. His covenant with Abram sent into motion the human lineage of his son. The Mosaic covenant revealed the glory of his righteousness and wisdom. All of these covenants anticipated and made way for the new covenant of Jesus' blood. But even the new covenant under which we live awaits its final fulfillment. And that fulfillment, the end of salvation history, will hearken back once again to the Exodus. The sky will be darkened. Terror will strike the hearts of men. The waters above the, the earth will be parted, and we will be caught up in the sky to meet our Lord. And this is what Jesus says about that day when all promises find their end. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from sky, the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Amen. So do you see how the glorious day of the Lord mirrors the Exodus? It's a drama which serves as a type of salvation. But I want to shift our focus back now to Genesis because there is another story about Abraham, another type of our salvation, which is far more famous. 
It's the story of Abraham's test, or the binding of Isaac, as the Jews refer to it. The story is even more fundamental to our understanding of God's redemption. For many years, I confess, I wrestled with this story. Has anybody else wrestled with this story? It is a difficult story. <laughs> I always feared that God was going to ask of me something so terrible that I couldn't do it. I wasn't going to ask, the, wasn't pass the test. I feared loving people too much because then God might take them away from me. But I was looking at the story through the wrong end of a telescope. This is not a story about what God demands of men, but it's a revelation of what he gives to men. It's a prophetic drama illustrating the love between God the Father and God the Son. This is the love which undergirds the law. It's a revelation of the sacrifice which will ultimately fulfill the law. We need this drama. We need human stories to grasp the emotions of God, to understand his thoughts, his waves, his motives, because he is far above us. This is why Jesus told so many parables, to make the Father known. I am convinced that this story of the binding of Isaac is a story that is held eternally close to the heart of the Father. It's a story that is eternally remembered in heaven because it portrays the Father's role in salvation. It's a, it's a role so dreadful and astounding that it has only one type. There are many types of Jesus, but the Father has asked only one prophet in all of history to play his part in the story of salvation. And that prophet was Abraham. When we arrive in Genesis 22, the long-awaited son has finally arrived. Isaac is, in fact, an older youth or a young man at the time. Abraham and Sarah are at peace. Their faith has been vindicated. They have seen the fulfillment that they had to leave, live to see. They trusted the possession of the land would come in time, and they were satisfied. And then... God spoke to Abraham again, just as he had done in Haran and on the night of covenant. And this is what he said. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Note the phrase, your son, your only son, the one whom you love. This is the first time the word love appears in scripture. And God knows exactly what he is saying because he has a son, an only son, whom he loves, who is, in fact, one in being with him. I believe that somehow Abraham heard the urgency or perhaps even a tenderness in God's call because he did not question or plead like he had done before. This time he simply obeyed. 
Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he split wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. The fire pot appears again here. Abraham climbs the mountain holding the fire. Isaac bears the wood on his back, carrying it like a cross. Taken together, I believe we have an image of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the fire, moving in unison towards the mountain of sacrifice. Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he said to him, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide for himself a lamb. Here is the other key verse from the Abraham narrative crucial to the gospel. Providing for himself a lamb is exactly what God did in sending his son as an atonement for our sin. The sacrifices prescribed through Moses were, as Paul says, a tutor. They were a visible sign of the cost of our sin. But the blood of goats and rams cannot fundamentally change our nature. Only a sacrifice originating from God and given by God can truly transform us into children of God. And so, before the foundation of the world, the Father and Son, in complete unity of heart, agreed that the Son would become God's sacrifice. Jesus would be the Lamb which God provides, the Lamb which takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, God was not asking Abraham to go undergo some terrible trial to prove his worth. He was not asking Abraham to prove his obedience in order to receive his blessing. No, he was entrusting to Abraham something inestimably precious, something so close to his own heart. He was asking his friend to walk in faith through an agony of darkness which would foreshadow the crucifixion. Abraham could not know the end of God's intention before setting out on that journey because the agony he underwent had to be real in order for, to enter the pathos of the story. He had to be in pain in order for us to see the Father. Does that make sense? It's easy for us to imagine the Father disengaged from the suffering of the crucifixion. Matt has often said we often picture him turning away from the Son. Or we might imagine him sitting in heaven, kind of impassive, knowing it's all going to turn out okay. The accuser would like to paint the Father as an angry tyrant demanding blood. Satan would like us to see the Father as a God who is cruel. But in reality, 
God has given us that which he did not ask of Abraham. He did not spare his own son, the one he loves more dearly than we can know. Being human, on some level, we can relate to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. We understand physically what torment that would be. We understand the pain of betrayal and denial. We can even, I think, imagine a love that is willing to die for another's behalf. We can imagine Mary weeping at the foot of the cross. But can we imagine what it would be like to give our own son to that suffering? I believe the father suffered more than Abraham suffered because of the depth of his emotion and the fullness of his union with the son. It is beyond anything we have experienced yet in our flesh. We don't know what it means to be one in being with another person. We cannot sacrifice another person without violating that other's being. For us, such a sacrifice would be murder. And this is why the story has to play out first before the law. But in this beautiful picture of Isaac and the strength of his youth, standing before his father, allowing the ropes to cripple him, allowing himself to be placed on the wood, we have an image of the trust and the love between our heavenly father and his only begotten who desire the very same end, that we would be saved. Now the fact that Abraham was willing to trust God that far, without understanding, moved God's heart deeply, deeply. He spoke from heaven again, overflowing with love, and I believe with a divine gratitude, saying, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, in years later, when the Israelites were established in the land, God chose this very place, Mount Moriah, as the site of his temple, the place where he would establish his name, the place where he chose to dwell in the midst of his people. That's how much he loved Abraham. That's how much this act of faith meant to him, that he was always right there. This is how much he can love a particular man. Father, I am so grateful that you take men as friends. I am so grateful that our faith can touch your heart. I am so grateful that you love us with an undying love. I am so thankful that you did not spare your only son. I cannot wait to meet Abraham. I cannot wait to embrace him as a daughter. So in closing, friends in Christ, I ask you, would you please stand with me and let us confess 
the mystery of our faith in light of Abraham's witness. This is a verse you all know well, but I see it differently now that I know Abram better. Is there a slide for this? Ah, okay, well, there's not. So let's do it this way. Let's say together John 3.16, thinking of Abraham. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen, amen, hallelujah.